0: Hey guys, Dan Fagello with Tech Emergence, and today we're going to go a little bit behind the scenes. I only say behind the scenes because my host for this particular episode is actually the fellow who passes a lot of the smart investors over to me who I've interviewed previously on the show. This is Edmund Lowell. He works with me uh, at Tech Emergence with many of the folks that we've done interviews on and articles about at techemergence.com. He's all over Southeast Asia, including Singapore and Uh, various other countries out there speaking with investors and entrepreneurs in that domain. And today he's actually conducting an interview himself with an investor he had met who we thought might be a good fit for the program. So I'm going to let Ed take it away and we'll rock and roll from here.
1: Welcome. My guest today is Dean Vandrasik, an executive director of Arch Advisory, a boutique investment advisory firm focused on arranging structured credit-driven investments in Asia debt restructuring, and mergers and acquisitions. Previously, he was an executive director with Lim Advisors, a Hong Kong-based fund manager, where he co-managed the high-yield and special situation investment portfolios for a number of Lim's funds over the course of seven years. He's also served as a director at Charlemagne Capital in London, where he focused on investments and structured finance in East Asia. Sorry, Eastern European developing markets. Before embarking on a career in fund management, he spent 12 years in investment banking in Asia, serving as a co-head of Asia for Hulen, Loki, Howard, and Zukin, an investment bank specializing in debt restructuring. Managing Director with Bank of America and Director of Credit Agricole Indosuez, previously known as W.J. Carr and Carr Indosuez. In the latter position, he headed the Equity Capital Markets Division and Country Funds Division for a number of years. Welcome to the podcast, Dean. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. So, can you tell us a little bit more about who Dean is? Can you tell us how you made it over to Asia and what exactly you're up to nowadays?
2: Sure. I uh, I took an interest in Asia from the uh, standpoint of my undergraduate studies. Uh, where I had uh, degrees in political science, history, and Asian studies. And I was fortunate enough to have a semester abroad in Japan. And uh, that really uh, was quite exciting and very interesting for me. So I always had the ambition to to work in Asia. Um, I got my law degree from the University of Michigan, where I specialized in international law and uh, commercial transactions. And then I worked a couple of years in the States. And then an opportunity came up to go and work as a lawyer in Korea. And uh, that was at uh, 1988, when Korea was just really coming onto the global stage, in part because of the uh, Olympics there that year. So I went, moved over to Korea, and I've
1: been in Asia ever since. Interesting. So now that you find yourself in Asia, are you seeing a lot of opportunities in the emerging markets, particularly in your area, the finance sector?
2: Yes, it's been a, a continuous—I uh, would say—a continuously positive development in terms of the ability of foreign investors to participate in these markets. Um, when I first came out in the 80s, a great many of the markets had very uh, 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 substantial restrictions on the abilities of foreigners to participate in either the, the equity or the venture capital or the uh, the debt markets. Um, many of them also had very strict foreign exchange controls, and all of these made it quite difficult to invest. Back then, people were talking about the Asian Tigers, which were, was uh, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong and Singapore, and how well they had done during the 80s in terms of uh, their economic development and their stock market performance. And then in the 90s, we had what were the tiger cubs, which included Thailand, Indonesia, uh, Malaysia, and, and I think Philippines was kind of thrown in there, but they didn't really do very much at that time. Um, and these economies also were following a similar pattern, uh, targeting export growth, reducing restrictions on foreign investment uh, and opening up their stock markets and, and capital markets in general to foreign funds inflow. And that has uh, stood them in, in quite, good, uh, quite good shape, although countries like uh, Philippines, Indonesia and Thailand uh, and to a lesser extent Malaysia have not been able to keep up the pace in terms of the investment that uh, they have needed in things like infrastructure and also in uh, human capital.
1: And now heading into 2014, what do you see as the major economies in Asia that are poised for growth, in your opinion?
2: Well, if you don't mind, I'll just restrict my comments to Southeast Asia, which is where I I spend most of my time working right now, um, as opposed to to North Asia and including China. Um, I think the Philippines will still continue to uh, grow quite strongly and probably be one of the better performers. Uh, There remain very sizable challenges there but it has one of the better uh, education systems. They are producing a lot of people. There's a lot of potential for uh, people who are working overseas to come back to add additional skills in the event that uh, employment opportunities become available. Uh, And the government has been relatively friendly towards foreign investment, with the exception being in the mining sector, uh, which is fairly problematic, but uh, otherwise it seems to be doing well. And then the other ones, you know, if you look at the major ones, that would be Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia, and to a lesser extent, a lot of people are interested in Myanmar right now. I think they'll all have reasonable economic growth, but, um, you know, they all share, uh, well, with the exception of Vietnam, they all share similar problems in terms of their long-term human capital issue because their education systems are really not keeping up uh, the way they should be. They're not getting enough uh qualified graduates, particularly in the sciences and engineering that they need. Um, And uh, they still are not making the sorts of investments in infrastructure that they need in order to promote a higher level of economic growth. And to some extent, that's a throwback to the Asian crisis in the late 1990s, where everyone became so afraid of having a problem like that again, that they have really slowed down on infrastructure growth. And that's beginning to uh, dampen uh, economic growth right now.
1: Well, going back to something which you mentioned earlier is uh, Southeast Asian companies finding venture capital, and you mentioning that off the podcast you were able to help companies do that in the past. How do Southeast Asian companies go about finding venture capital, or uh, you know, debt or equity financing?
2: In in some countries, like for example, Vietnam, Vietnam is kind of unique in that there's actually quite a few. Uh, venture capital firms there, which have marshaled foreign money uh, for uh, early and mid-stage Vietnamese projects, and many of those funds are quite well managed and have a reasonable track record. Aside from the fact that you know they've been hit by uh, periodic devaluations of the Vietnamese dong, um, but basically they they are a good conduit for investment capital. We haven't seen that much in the way of domestic Vietnamese venture capital open up. But banks are willing to lend, you know, in the case that uh, entrepreneurs have, you know, a certain minimum amount of their own capital to invest into a project. In other words, they will do greenfield projects, but on a a highly selective basis. In Thailand, um, we don't have as much, um, I would say, uh, uh, structured venture capital in the form of funds that, that specifically target that. However, quite a few of the global venture capital funds are active here. Uh, They look, though, for much more sizable projects than than your normal Thai startup. Most of them are looking for initial investments of at least $20 million, some with an investment size of a minimum of, say, $100 million. So that is also available, but where it's lacking really is in the small and medium-sized business side. And that's something that um, Thailand does need to address. Myanmar is just starting, so it's a little early to say. Most of the money that we've seen going in there so far has been with uh, some of the larger um, funds, uh, again, managed out of Hong Kong or Singapore or the Middle East, um, but it's very early stages yet, so I, I don't think you can say anything about a trend or overall availability yet at this time. Indonesia has, uh, has both. It has uh, a number of domestic uh, funds, which tend to be smaller, but uh, they're re- usually relatively savvy. Um, also, a lot of foreign investors, foreign investment funds are also looking at Indonesia at this time. Indonesia is somewhat easier to get larger projects in uh, because it is a larger economy. And in many cases, these companies, um, you know, are just large ones which have not been listed yet. So, you know, you may even be in a third or, you know, third generation uh, company. It's just that it hasn't listed yet. And therefore, it's a, it's a, um a potential target for uh, for foreign investment through venture capital. But the real problem that they all have, including the Philippines too, which I didn't mention, is is that for the small and medium-sized businesses, there there just is not really uh, a developed venture capital market yet.
1: Why do you feel like that is? Is that maybe because of the legal or political restrictions? Is there, if you had to take a guess, I mean, we're speaking hypotheticals here, but if you had to say a reason, why do you think that investors have been Unable or, or hesitant, I'm not sure which, to deploy capital into these countries. Um,
2: there's lots of people who would love to do uh, small, medium-sized uh, venture capital in these countries. The problem is, is getting the money for it, getting the investors to stump up. Quite often when you see these funds in other countries, some of the main supporters are domestic pension funds or domestic insurance companies or uh, domestic high net worth investors. For all the companies we've talked about here, you know, in the Southeast Asian mesh, quite a few of them, if they've got money, they're getting it overseas. So it may be managed by, you know, uh, Goldman Sachs in in private banking in Hong Kong, or it may be managed by Bank Julius Baer out of Switzerland or something else. But a lot of the the family uh, investment money is just not being kept in the country. So that's one problem. The second problem is that there are restrictions on... Uh, what insurance companies and domestic pension funds can invest in. And so quite often, even though these institutions would like to see something with a higher potential return than what they're getting on, say, government bonds or, or uh, you know, just a small investment in the stock market, but they're prohibited from doing so. So you need to have new regulations uh, that open that up. Taiwan was a very good example of this. Taiwan opened up their, their regulations and allowed their institutions and, and private persons to invest more in these sort of riskier products back. I, I think that would have been in the late 80s or early 90s. I can't remember exactly. But that spurred uh, the development of a, of a very strong and vibrant uh, venture capital sector. Um, and that was obviously linked to the development of Taiwan also as a, uh, as a, uh, a high-tech hub. Whereas in Korea, for example, that you had the opposite case, they basically got money from the from the banking sector and the, and the state owned banks and also uh, patronage from uh, from the government for specific projects. So overall, I'm, I'm hopeful that um, that uh, the Southeast Asian economies will follow the Taiwan example and that we what we will see is a gradual lessening of the restrictions on domestic investors, which will allow them to put money into these things, and then we'll see a bit, then we'll see more more growth from that area.
1: That's interesting. And then there could also be a, a growing trend for the foreign investors to invest alongside the domestic investors if there was more activity in the area as well.
2: Right now, the most of the foreign investors coming out here, I mean the you know a lot of these funds are really bloated. You know they've got two or three billion dollars under management. And they can't really be going out and trying to find a $5 million investment project. So they'll continue to, to uh, supply funding for the larger projects. And, you know, when we tell when we talk with our clients, a lot of our clients are small and medium, but we also have some very large ones. And it's always easier for us if we have to raise $200 million. That's easier for us to do as opposed to raising, you know, $15 million. Sounds silly, but that's
1: the reality. You know, that's an interesting thing for entrepreneurs and business owners to understand when they're going out and raising capital is that maybe you can explain that a little bit more for our listeners. Is it only the due diligence, which is, uh, you know, it's tougher to do due diligence on 10 deals at $15 million. Is that the reason why? Is it because the reason why you mentioned before that the funds are bloated? Why is it that these uh, pension funds and other large VC funds are willing to do larger deals but more hesitant to do smaller deals? Is it simply the time versus money equation?
2: Well, I think you put your finger on it exactly. It, it's just a question of the amount of time that needs to be dedicated to them versus the potential return on the investment. You're not going to put your full team on a project that you know, only involves an investment of say $15 million. And let's say that that will double in, you know, three years time or something. So you have a $15 million profit and you as the fund manager, maybe you get, um, you know, somewhere between 10 and 20% of that as your profit, as opposed to investing in a 50 million project, which also will double in say three years, and then you get 15 or 20% of that. So purely as an economic issue, you know, it's better to spend because the same. You're probably involving the same amount of time in terms of doing the due diligence between the two. And uh, so, if you're a, if you're a large fund manager, obviously you're going to go for the larger projects that have a bigger bigger payoff, as long as you can adequately diversify the risk. You know, if you're only managing a hundred million dollars, then yes, you have to do the ten million or fifteen million dollar projects. But if you're managing a five hundred million dollar or a billion dollar portfolio. Then you definitely want to go for the
1: $50 million and up. And that also, conversely, leaves kind of an open opportunity for funds or investors who are investing in a smaller amount because now they have deals that they can pick where there's less competition and there's a greater need from the company simply because there's less investors in the area deploying capital.
2: To some extent, that's correct. I mean, the, the larger investors are the larger projects t- do tend to get better pricing terms than the smaller ones. So it's cheaper to raise, in addition to being easier, it's also somewhat cheaper to raise the funding at the, at the higher level than it is the smaller level.
1: And is that also because of the time situation and the due diligence? Um, I think more it's because of the scarcity of funding opportunities. So maybe we could segue into kind of investments that you've worked on in the past. What types of investments, and maybe you even have a story about one of these investments and how it worked out.
2: I've obviously been involved in, in quite a few markets over the years. Um, But one thing which is consistent throughout them is making sure that you have a good under, if you're going to be an investor in them, making sure that you have good understanding of how the legal system works. And this is obviously more true for uh, venture capital investors and debt investors than it is for listed equity. Listed equity nowadays, there are very few markets that have uh, significant restrictions on the ability to move capital into and out of. A country, or to uh, sell the shares and turn the local uh, the local currency into foreign currency capable of being remitted. So the real issue comes in in let let's just say, for example, bonds or loans. And many people have been attracted by the bond yields that you get out of markets like Indonesia and the Philippines, particularly compared to bond yields in Europe and the U.S. So you have a situation where a lot of people who do not necessarily understand the legal environments in these countries will be buying these bonds. And this goes to very sophisticated institutional investors too. Um, a couple years ago, I was on one, one project and we were discussing it, um, the uh, drafting of the documentation online. So all of the investors were talking together with the lawyers and the, uh, the lead manager. And uh, we had one guy who was on there who was kind of thumping the table and saying, well, you know, we've really got to do it this way. And everyone said, why do we have to do it that way? And he said, well, this is the way I did the last two deals like this. We said, well, okay, which deals were there? And, you know, they were both in Colombia. Okay. And this was an Indonesian deal. So you do get, and this guy was from, you know, one of the top 50 pension funds in the U.S., so you get situations like this where people uh, feel they have a knowledge about execution, but they don't really get what the local, con- they don't really understand what the local conditions are so they can interpret them. And the other thing that's true is true is like, for example, in, uh, in a situation that we had in Thailand one time, uh, we were working with a group of uh, creditors, lenders to a project, and uh, we told them that their recovery was going to be zero. And they got very upset and they said, well, look, we, we had our lawyers do this. We had these, you know, these are, you know, a large, uh, very prominent law firm out of, that's uh, headquartered out of New York. They went in there when we did this deal, they did all the due diligence. They confirmed all of the land title aspects here in Thailand. We had this also confirmed with this Thai law firm, you know, so we know that we've got this land and it's right on the beachfront, you know, so it has got, you can't tell us that it's not worth anything. And we brought in the, uh, the land surveyor and, uh, you know, to address the predators. And they said, well, you know, is the land there? He said, yes, the land is there and it's correctly as described. And they said, well, how can you say it's not worth anything? And he said, well, I'm sorry, but the land is only there when the tide is out. And no one had bothered, you know, all these investors who, who bought into this, nobody had actually gone there in person to look at the land. They had just relied on the lawyers to confirm that the title was correct. So a lot of these things that sound funny actually can lead into very serious problems when you get into uh, even what people consider to be secured lending here in Asia. So you really need to, to know the structures and they are very, very different. Um, and many times you can, you can be distracted because you'll get a uh, you'll get a prospectus or you'll get a uh, uh, information memorandum from a major international uh, investment bank and it will look like the same sort of information memorandum you're getting from for a company in in uh, Poland or Germany or Brazil or Mexico or wherever so it all looks standard but what they're not doing is they're not highlighting to you the uh, differences that you're going to encounter as an investor in these markets and that's that's where people sometimes get very uh, very frustrated, particularly if it does get to come to the case where the company needs to be restructured or, or the debt needs to be rescheduled or something like that.
1: So what's perhaps a lesson that we can draw from that particular deal, something that maybe a listener could apply to their own experience?
2: Well, I think the key thing is that um, although you can look at the markets, you know, uh, many investors that they'll just look through a spreadsheet and they'll say, I want something which has a maturity of no more than two years or three years yet and a yield of north of six. And so all of a sudden, all of these Asian names will pop. And so they'll pull up the company on the spreadsheet and they'll, uh, on the Bloomberg and they'll say, oh, that looks nice. And I like that business sector. And maybe they will buy some. Okay, Just know that when you do that, you actually are taking more of a risk. It's not like you're buying something on the same basis in the U.S., Canada, or European market where – the, a lot of the underlying legal issues are sort of taken for granted. In Asia, things can work very differently depending on the market. So there has to be a certain level of uh, understanding that you definitely are taking on substantially more risk than you would have in the, in the developed markets. And also too, it pays to spend a little bit of time talking with people and finding out just what those, those risks are going to be, both from the legal standpoint but also, also from the geopolitical, because uh, these markets, like any markets, do get whipsawed around because of uh, political controversy. And uh, they're all still at the early stages of uh, developing democracies. And, uh, you know, so we do get quite a bit of, uh, of uh, political
1: jockeying. So you mentioned legal risks and geopolitical risks. Is there anything else that investors might need to be cognizant of when deploying capital in Asia? Southeast Asia, more particular?
2: One of the things that will really help you is being sure that the investment bank who arranges the deal um, is uh, standing beside it. Um, because if things do get to go bad, the problem is is that if you've got a bunch of investors, none of whom have a presence in Southeast Asia, uh, none of whom have a particular uh, investor within their group which feels that they can understand the market, then you don't have anyone to lead the, the creditor group. And I've seen this happen a number of times and it's, it's quite sad because they just don't know what to do. And um, you know it's, it's, they're really at the mercy of, of, the, of the borrower at that point. If, however, you have an investment bank which actually takes a stake in the investment that they're marketing to you, and they maintain that stake, then you've got a much better chance of getting an acceptable workout at the end. Now the problem is that a lot of the, um, um, or, or not a lot of, some of the major American banks, investment banks in particular, will take a stake, but then all of a sudden you find out that they sold it down you know, within you know, two months of, of the deal. and. You know, so it doesn't help. So they go out there and they market this and they say, yeah, you know, we're taking 25 or 20% of the deal. And then it turns out that they've sold all of that to their private banking clients or or to other people. And maybe they've got 1% of the deal left or something like that. You know, so that's, that's one thing that I would say is always look, always when you're investing, if, if you're investing on the primary market or even on the secondary, see if you can find out some information about who the other holders are or who like the, the, the major one or two are and be sure that there's someone that has uh, either a presence or substantial experience in Southeast Asia so that just in case things do go bad, you've got somebody who can
1: help uh, manage the process. So I I want to continue to dig into the subject because I feel you have a good grasp of it, and it's important. Um, We mentioned geopolitical risk. We mentioned the legal system. We mentioned doing your due diligence on the investment bank. Is there anything else that makes a deal particularly investable? What are you looking for in the due diligence phase that you might not have mentioned yet?
2: Well, the thing that we didn't mention overall is is probably the most critical one, and that is the commercial viability of the project, which frankly makes Southeast Asia so exciting because what we've got here is we've got uh, a couple of things, uh, a couple of major um, developments going on which are quite uh, supportive of a positive environment for investors. The first is that we continue to have increasing urbanization in Southeast Asia. And while that sounds a little bit bad, in other words, we've got more people moving to the cities. What it does mean is that we get a a bigger concentration of, of people. We usually have skills going up. Uh, we usually have more cost-efficient uh, infrastructure because people are more densely uh, uh, being housed in a certain area. Whereas in the rural area, if you want to give everyone a flush toilet, you know, you're going to have to, it's going to be much more expensive. But in the city, if they're packed in the city blocks, it's much easier and more efficient to do it. Um, so th- there's a lot of benefits to to urbanization, and that creates a lot of growth potential and more more consumers in a more concentrated area. And it depends, it also uh, usually drives wages up. So, one is urbanization. That is an ongoing phenomenon, and it probably will continue uh, without abatement. Uh, it continued without abatement during the last two financial crises out here, and uh, it seems set to continue. The second thing is the development of the middle class. And obviously, China and uh, Korea uh, are the two uh, best examples of how this. Can have a material impact on uh, local economy. Um, it was something that, if you were reading, you know, economic materials back in the in the 80s, it wasn't wasn't as uh, emphasized as strongly as it is today. But this is a real factor um, in Indonesia. The problem from an investor standpoint is, is kind of is is trying to access the right information. For example, in Indonesia, I was at a conference recently, and we had four different speakers. And all four of them disagreed on what the basis of calculating the middle class would be. One was looking at disposable income. One was looking at uh, gross income. One was looking at the amount of income available for uh, longer term investments, like in a house or in a, in a retirement portfolio. And the last one was looking at the, um, the uh, uh, amount of funds available on a family basis as opposed to an individual basis, and they all also with different numbers in terms of how large the middle class was in Indonesia. But the important thing is that they all agreed that it's growing, and as it grows, in every economy where this has ever happened, it's the same pattern. People start, what do they first spend a little bit more money on? They spend a little more money on health care, more money on on basic food, uh, so they eat better, um, they will spend a little bit more money on uh, maybe some consumer products. That's usually not a big thing. But, but, but food, um, medical, uh, education, um, and uh, transportation, more efficient transportation, uh, usually things like buses or public transport. So, you know, the, the progression is well-charted. It's been seen in a lot of developed countries over the years. And in Asia, we, we are seeing, you know, the development of these consuming middle classes. And that's a great opportunity for investors um, because they can work on the retail side selling it. They can work on the production side making the products. Um, and uh, there's there's huge markets out there.
1: Well, you're absolutely right. And we're also seeing that growing middle class coming online really for the first time, um, getting credit cards for the first time. And it's an exciting time. For companies that are looking to expand or start up in Asia, just because there's such quickly growing economies and a lot of opportunities are being created, more so than, say, a developed nation where a lot of those basic goods and services have already been kind of satisfied by existing companies.
2: That's right. I mean, one of the funny things was um, uh, Korea. I don't know if it's still the case, but at one point, Korea had the distinction of having the highest amount of per capita debt on credit cards, you know, relative to GDP. In, in the world, and that was really because they just they said, okay, well, we're going to allow companies to give it to everyone, and everyone took them up and said, wow, this is neat. Um, and in in Jakarta, when I travel, you know, up to see, uh, we do a lot of work with uh, agricultural companies like uh, rubber plantations and oil palm plantations. So quite often you're you're out in the countryside, and there's still mobile phone reception. There's no phone lines. There's no There's no phone for you know fifty or hundred kilometers, but you know your mobile phone still works, and you go out to the villages and people have mobile phones. They have a way of connecting, and you know here in Thailand, the guys, you know, uh, you know the farmers up in the north, they can go on their mobile phone and they can find out what the what the current price is for some of the crops. Um, so you know many of these uh, these technological developments are are having a material impact in in people's well-being. But one of the the problems has been the lack of uh, government spending on on new infrastructure. And um, as I said before, that's in part because the governments were very much afraid of going into debt again because of their experience during the Asian crisis. But they really do need to start getting uh, more comprehensive programs in place because otherwise it's the lack of infrastructure access constraint. But again, that leaves a very excellent opportunity for financial investors. If you're comfortable investing in things like ports and power projects and water systems and sewage systems, um, all of these things are desperately needed uh, in all all of our Southeast Asian nations. So it's just really a question of finding the right opportunity which suits you as an investor and then, uh, taking advantage of that, and those are long term uh, long term sorts of investments too with with quite uh, quite attractive yields from an international basis
1: absolutely and those infrastructure investments open up an interesting opportunity because now you have the capability to deploy new technology in these emerging markets. Um, if we look at the fastest uh, 4g network in the world it 's actually located in Mongolia the company doesn 't have telephone lines it runs Mostly on 4G, which is, I think, fascinating to see that emerging technology and emerging economies that is kind of leapfrogged developed economies by the advent of new technologies.
2: I mean, you're seeing that too with with China with their uh, their high-speed rail lines. Um, you know, that's uh, that's a tremendous benefit to people who are, are using them for shipping shipping goods and services. So. Uh, whether we'll see that, one of, the, one of the interesting things, since you bring that up, that, that sort of relates to that are mini power projects, uh, things like mini hydro um, and um, uh, mini bio, uh, biomass projects. Um, m- many of them, the technology is now coming out of uh, Europe. Uh, they're very uh, efficient and we're seeing a lot of those going into uh, the Philippines and uh, Indonesia in particular. But the problem we have, again, is the fact that they're relatively small-sized.
1: Well, we're coming up on the close of the interview, so I'm going to hit you with the lightning round closing. Uh, so each week we ask three different questions. And this week, the uh, question, the number one is, what are you reading right now? What's on your book stand?
2: Uh, Tanazaki's uh, short stories. He's a Japanese writer, uh, you know, so I, I have a fondness for Japanese literature. So sorry it's not exciting it's not like buffett's autobiography or something like that
1: that's all right that sounds interesting um so what's one piece of advice that you would give to entrepreneurs or companies that are seeking capital in southeast asia
2: well if they're seeking capital the, the key thing is to match you, you you need some help in terms of uh tapping into it and the best thing to do is to match the uh, uh advisor's capabilities with your with your own needs if you if you're looking for small-scale uh, capital, you need to find a, you know someone who's been successful with that, um, you know, rather than going to one of the large investment banks and local banks. Uh, many people actually don't go to local banks to try and get uh, venture capital financing, but in actuality, we're seeing a lot of local banks, particularly in Thailand, uh, which are doing a very good job of that now. So. You might not have, if you're a Thai small business person, you might not have thought about going to, uh, uh, to say Bangkok Bank to try and help you raise some venture capital, but uh, now they, they're actually doing a fairly good job. So, be sure to check out the resources that are available in your home
1: country first. So, last question: Give us a business idea. What company would you like to see started in Southeast Asia where you think there's an opportunity?
2: I think the biggest opportunity in Southeast Asia, and this is for, is for all the markets from Philippines to Vietnam to uh, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, certainly Myanmar, uh, to a lesser extent Malaysia and Indonesia, is uh, food uh, cold storage and uh, uh, first-stage processing. Uh, there's a tremendous waste of food uh, in Southeast Asia because it's too long to get it from the farmers to the urban centers. There's not enough processing. There's not enough cold storage and haulage. And uh, as a result, you know, quite a bit of uh, of, um, crops are being wasted or the pricing is not being uh, adequately reflected and, uh, you know, putting together more as the middle class grows, they will be consuming more processed foods and uh, so that I think is is an area of tremendous growth potential. And as I said earlier, when people have a little bit more money in their pocket, one of the first things they do is they make sure that their family eats better, more quality food.
1: All right. Well, Dean, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Um, if someone listening in our audience wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way that they can reach out?
2: Just check us out on our website, which is www.archadvisory.com. A-R-C-H, Arch advisory is one word. And uh, we'll be happy to get back to you. And thank you very much for the opportunity to, uh, to reach out to your listeners today.
1: You're welcome, Dean. Thank you and have a great day.
0: Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, If you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, And be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, More than anything else, always feel free to reach out. If you can find us via email, um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Um, So with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week.